Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing News for Accredited Investors. Check out the video webinar version of this episode on our YouTube channel or visit simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter and check out our sister podcast by searching for the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast on your favorite podcast player. Folks, this is the Investor Weekly News Update for February 20th. Happy President's Day holiday. If you're like myself, you forget about holidays. But here we go. First article here from Yahoo Finance. Inflation reaches 0.5% over last month in January, most since October. The CPI index for January showed a 0.5% increase in prices over the past month. I don't know about you, but I don't really follow the month to month one. Look at more from the annual inflation, because that's really what is trying to line up to that 3% target that the Fed's trying to. Economists had expected prices to climb 6.2% year over year and jump 0.5% over the over month to month per consensus from Bloomberg. This last sit down week in Washington, D.C., Powell said he expects housing inflation to fall in the middle of the year, which I think we've re- reported on this the week pr- prior to that in the Kimono Report, which you guys can get access to, at least to the first part. We're going to need to send that out to non-live investors, but you guys can get access to that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. Get signed up there and join our community. Continuing on, there has been an ex- expectation that inflation will go away quickly and painlessly. I don't think it's guaranteed that the base case Paul said last Monday at the Economic Club of DC, even the as he acknowledged the presence of disinflation in the economy, he says it will take some time. The new model estimates sees rates at 475 to 5% at the end of this year. Inflation is down substantially from the peak, however, and we probably see inflation continue to moderate as the year goes on. But even by year end, optimistically, inflation is going to be up 3%, maybe 3.5% from a year and a half ago. So something we are very much looking as a few of the deals, especially the ones that went in late 2021, those last deals, a lot of people started to use floating rate debt. And we actually do have a podcast coming out here very shortly, diving into the topic. Commercial property executive reports that what 2023 will bring to data centers. So this this article is a little bit coming out of left field. If you're not familiar with investing in data centers, those are the mainframe computers that, you know, you need real estate and you need a lot of equipment to run this. Now, more and more into the future, the big companies such as Amazon's have their huge servers and are taking up space from what some small mom and pawn investors could do. Very similar to a lot of you guys are dentists and you're familiar with the DSOs, the DSOs coming up and gobbling up the small entrepreneur dentist. At some point, buying up little rental properties or apartments is going to be out of the reach of the average Joe. And that's just the name of the game. The institutions find a way to come in and eat up all the resources at some point. One of the the big things about these data centers is construction activity also spiked with the pipeline within primary markets more than doubling year over year and hitting 1600 megawatts. So it's the power that is really important to this stuff. Continuing on to sustain growth over the next years, developers had to prioritize securing land and power entitlements. 
So something, I don't know, we have maybe a few people, we have a lot of engineers in our investor group. I, I do recall like a few guys did that, but it's, ne- it's never come up in the last couple of years. It might be this the whole thing might be a dying investment as far as like the institutions coming in. But I always thought it was interesting. Thesis or my investment thesis is invest in things that aren't going to be going away, that are really boring. I am not a huge fan of tech. I like it. I like to use it. I think it's great. I maybe even consider myself a bit of a futurist. But as far as investment goes, I really like really boring things that are going to be ending the test of time, which is why I like workforce housing and in that case, computers. Computers are going to be around. That said, I don't invest in that stuff. I might be interested in the future, but I don't have any skin in the game in that sector as of now. RE Business Online reports that Ford to break ground on a 3.5 billion electric vehicle battery plant in Marshall, Michigan. This will bring about 2,500 workers upon completion in 2026. Uh, this kind of piqued my interest. You know, it's, in, it's not as loud as the old Tesla camp, which seems to get a lot of publicity and excitement. Ford's going into Marshall, Michigan. And when I looked it up, yeah, was, yeah, this is definitely a tertiary market, maybe even a tertiary market, if you get that joke. Not my cup of tea as far as investment. I tend to like, I guess in the beginning, when we were first investing, we would go to these small tertiary markets. But these days, I want to be in semi-major markets, like ha- at least half a million population there. This is your reminder. If you haven't yet, please... Sign up for the club, simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. You get access to the Infinite Banking e-course, the syndication light e-course, and a whole bunch of other content, such as the Kimono Report that just got released last week. And if you haven't yet, please book on the call to connect with myself as I like to help you guys out, get you guys going on that free intro call. Next article is Tesla buying up Houston Air property for mystery project. Now, this one definitely piqued my interest. Not so much it was like Tesla, Elon Musk, that whole thing. This actually is in Katy, which is a suburb of Houston. And it is definitely on that kind of path of project progress. And we definitely have properties around that area. This is something that I'll usually, when I see these types of articles, I'll Google the location. And if it's a tertiary market, like the last one, I can't even remember what it was a couple slides ago, just chuck it in the can and not really pay much or too much attention to it. Now, I'm not saying that's a good way of investing. That's just my personal investment philosophy. But going back to this Tesla project, the purchase property features 1, 1 million square feet of space and industrial facilities with commercial shipping bays, among other features in a Empire West Park in Brookshire, just miles west of Katy. Multi-housing news is reporting the top 10 emerging markets in the United States. And I'll read them from the top. Number one, Madison, Wisconsin, West Palm Beach, Huntsville, Alabama. We know we love Huntsville, Alabama, right? White Plains, New York. Spokane, Washington is number five and number six here. Bell Springs, Colorado, Knoxville, Tennessee, Albany, New York, and New Orleans, to name a few. So not saying that they're like the best markets, but they're definitely on the put on your list to take a look at. A lot of these are more of these tertiary markets. Huntsville, Alabama being a great example that we've been involved in Huntsville, Alabama since 2018, I believe. And we know that market very well and consider it one of our top markets that we're playing in. Alliant breaks ground on four workforce housing projects in LA. 
Now, I know there's a lot of these kind of articles that come out. I just wanted to bring this up with you folks because it's workforce housing, a 727 unit where they're getting some, they're going to, when they rent it out, part of their permitting says that they have to set the average rent at 90% of the area's medium income. And then the firm will also restrict on 144 of the units to making 50% or less than the area's mean median income. So these are a lot of, it's hard to get permits. So sometimes they borrow and trade and make these deals with the municipalities to get these things permitted. And this is a way you're going to see it played out in many, especially urban areas like Los Angeles. This is how Hawaii is doing things. But I think it just goes to show that we need more workforce housing out there. This article came up from Adam, home prices and opportunity zone redevelopment areas fall during a fourth quarter. And this is what I keep telling everybody, like I'm not a huge fan of opportunity zone deals because too often people are letting the tax tail wag the dog and they are investing in garbage areas. And that's what opportunity zones are. They're typically garbage areas. Now, once in a while, you'll have an opportunity zone in a up and coming area where it's a little bit different. But typically, there's a reason why the Congress has designated a place opportunity zone and incentivizing people and developers to go into that area. Again, this is not saying how to invest. This is just my personal investment philosophy. I would just prefer to forego like opportunity zone tax credits and incentives and just play in areas that are very clean areas that it's not going to be 10, 20, 30 years for that area to become gentrified and turn around. I'm looking more towards going into it and being a good area in a very shorter period, if not at purchase or maybe less than five years. So I just thought I'd throw this article in here. As I told you, as we go into into progressed high interest rate environment, the recession will probably come and impact the majority of the economy in next year, 2024. It would be, I would be hesitant to be doing opportunity zone, like true opportunity zone type of endeavors. And I think this is the point where we go back to the basics. And we have a question at the end that we'll answer from investors that kind of falls along that line. Is now the time to be looking for those higher return deals? I'll end with this quote from the areas targeted for redevelopment tax breaks may be less vulnerable to taking a bit hit if the market keeps dropping because there are still some of the most affordable markets. That's a true quote. That's true point there. However, like it depends on how deep are your pockets to sustain. And the great thing about real estate is if you can hold on to the asset long enough, the price will eventually come up. Management.com came up this kind of thought-provoking article here. It began by talking about the obvious tax advantages for commercial real estate and how high net worth investors should think about it. They mentioned the IRS hiring 87,000 new agents. Although we do have two podcasts coming up, one next month and one I'll probably release it later on in the summertime. But basically, we have people who've worked with the IRS kind of going through the actual process. And I think all too often people in our ecosystem, especially in our club, where a lot of us are rule followers and just wanted to tell both sides of the story, right? Is Which is do everything you can to save taxes legally. Definitely don't do fraud. Don't do anything egregious. If you're owed a tax deduction or you're legitimately running real estate professional status, 
or certainly you're using the passive losses from your real estate to offset your passive income. That is how the wealthy pay little to no taxes. And you need to learn how to do that. If you, this is all new to you guys, I would go to our tax start page at simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. So one thing that they does impact high net worth families, the lifetime gift exemption is about to go down significantly after 2025, which is not good. After that, the focus is really on estate planning and many considerations that come along with it. Not only do these individual investors need to have a plan regarding transferring assets to the next generation. So basically what's happening, if you haven't heard, it really impacts people in the 10 to $20 million net worth range, which if you're two, $3 million, you start to implement the strategies that we do in your 40s, you're probably going to get to $5, $10 million net worth by the end of your lifetime. And it very well may, you're going to need to think about what's happening on the federal level and maybe what's even happening on the state level too, because you have to think about both of those. But as this article discusses, it's it's hugely important to properly educate the next generation. And that's something I'm personally really big on. I seem to have a huge interest in, we let you know some of the younger kids of our full members come to the events, meet some of the other younger people, but mainly just get them around high net worth, accredited investors in a fun way to have a more mature, responsible way of viewing wealth building and passing down the responsibility, passing down the privilege to. And the article says the young and even adult children of ultra high net worth individuals may be financially illiterate and may not know what is coming to them because the conversations never took place. And further, they may not be able to deal with a immediate influx of wealth, aka buy a Ferrari as soon as they get a big influx of cash. I'll just say like from our investor group, most majority of our investors are first generation wealth. You can call them what you want, immigrant mentality or broke people now having multiple six or multiple seven figures. It is what I've seen. What I know is 90% of wealthies family, it's in two to three generations. Typically, the next generation, which would be like my kids, they do all right. They typically will go and get a high income profession. And probably because they're just so close to the source, my daughter to myself, for an example, they tend not to be huge F-ups, if to use that terminology. Hopefully, they don't do drugs. I think where the problem goes, the problem comes into play, and I'm taking some data points from some of you guys out there. It's that third generation is the problem. As the second generation are in one maybe respect, they are just mindless salary people. No, no, no disrespect there, but I'm not talking to the people on this podcast. I'm talking to the people, you know, out there who the second generation knows nothing about real estate, how to build their wealth outside of Wall Street. And that second generation maybe heard some of it firsthand from their parents, but they certainly don't get it. And they teach their kids at their generation, you know, what they did, which was go to college, study hard and work at a high paid profession, which we all know what that creates, right? That creates the shrinking middle class that creates a high tax payer. I guess the system needs more of them. That's definitely not what we teach our folks out there. And I think it's important for people to work hard, but I also think it's important for people to be educated and to be a good steward of their wealth and to understand these strategies. The article goes on to saying the first generation creates the wealth and makes their kids have a good education and good opportunities. 
the second generation watches the first generation toll and work hard and they understand that they have options along with good education. I'm going to put insert in there. Some of them do drugs and some of them just go off and do East Asian studies and pottery for a job. But um, okay, that was my comments. <laughs> Typically, and then I'm reading the article now again. Typically, they have the careers that they want without a financial concern. And this is also typically where the wealth tops out. The third generation isn't as close to the first generation and the hard work they put in. They typically have a lot of hobbies and they'll do what they want. By the end of the third generation, there's nothing left. And I'll go back and I'll highlight the word hobbies. If you go and look at this cool Venn diagram of Ikigai, hobbies are things that maybe somebody is good at. And, but it doesn't really create utility in the world, which means you can't really monetize the damn thing, which is why it's a hobby. That's what a hobby is. And that's what, like pottery, for example. I, I don't know why. I don't know why I always beat up on the pottery people, but that's a very typical hobby. And then the fourth generation starts over. <laughs> so it goes in the cyclical three, four generation cycle. So the families have good communications around finances and who have good advisors who are involved in some of these conversations with all family members around wealth and succession planning usually will make all the difference. My, my past uh, discussion, I'm just basically reading it all here in a very much more concise matter that wealthmanagement.com put in here. But yeah, I guess we're aligned. The problem, and I'll end it with, how do we keep our kids motivated when they know what's coming to them? I always use when they're flying first class in United Polaris, now, some people have the attitude of we're never going to fly first class. I don't know if that's the wisest choice. Your kids are going to know you're rich. They're not, kids aren't stupid and you can fake it as long as you want. But I, I just think that like kids aren't dumb. They know. And I know at least for myself, that was perhaps one tactic to just make your kids think that you're poor or middle class. But I don't think that works. I'm personally leaning more towards, hey, yeah, you want to drive this car, you want to do this, but you got to create the passive cash flow to support that lifestyle. And yes, we are very lucky to be in the situation that we're in to live in the richest country and top X percent. Here are the stark differences between the way the lower middle class and middle class do these things in terms of investment, wealth, and the way they network with the right people. And it's your choice. It's your choice of what you want. Or I can just donate a huge mansion to them so they're forced to upkeep their lifestyle and pay the taxes on that mansion. That's another one I've heard. So ending off here, one question that came up from an investor out there, investor that had $1.5 million net worth. They were a high income earner making $700,000 a year from their very secure day job. And their concern that came up was, I don't need the cash flow today. I'm looking for something to grow my money because I don't need the returns now. And I'm willing to take more risk and do higher return deals, which I think is the right attitude to have. $1.5 million net worth isn't much. You definitely need to get it going to $3 million, $4 million to even start to think about taking your foot off the pedal off of the day job. Although for those of you guys who've connected me, connected with me, or if you haven't yet, I urge you guys to utilize that complimentary 15 minute onboarding call, because this is what we get into, right? A lot of it is not clear cut. It may be very well that you're well on your way. You've got $2.3 million net worth. You're making $300,000, $400,000 a year. And it may be time to tight trade off, which means either you or your spouse goes to part-time. 
maybe also opens the door for real estate professional status. So you save a lot more on taxes. But it, what I enjoy is building and helping people design their lifestyle in the most optimal, efficient way. Perhaps that's what a freaking financial planner is supposed to do. Although the licensed financial planners just sell people on commission products. I don't know. This is just something I'm passionate about. I, I feel like a lot of you guys are very hard workers and you guys just do it the very inefficient way. You, you work really hard. You pay a lot in taxes. And, but I guess I digress. Going back to this guy's question, he's saying, I'm looking for higher return deals. And as I've said it a few times right now with interest rates where they're at, I don't know how people are even making deals work these days. Development deals are different. Those kind of helicopter two, three years into the future and can be a lot more safe too. But as far as like value add deals go, right? Those are like, those are a little sketchy now, in my opinion. And if you're in deals that already went into and restabilize, you're sitting pretty right now. And which is the whole point of best time to invest was yesterday. And which is, but more importantly, I think I say, well, always be investing, always dollar cost average. But especially in times like this, it's time to look at what placement in the capital stack, as opposed to traditionally going after the common equity, which looks like the highest return possible. It may not be the place the kind of like the, where the smart money will go. And typically the smart money will go to the preferred equity where you're in it as more of a debt investor. Your upside is halved, but at this time in the market cycle with interest rates peaking and we don't know how quickly it's going to be coming down, I think it's just prudent to be in this type of like like a hedge strategy for the next six to maybe 18 months is what I'm thinking. But every situation is a little bit different and your asset allocation might be very different. With this person here, Maybe they take what I'm saying to heart and they're like, all right, I'm going to do 500 or 300 grand in higher riskier deals and then follow at Lainson and do maybe $500,000 in the pet fund and get 12%, 13% off that, which is about, what would that be like $5,000 a month paid like clockwork on that one. And then, you know, that money grows. And as far as what else are you doing with your money, right? Right now, Bank accounts are paying pretty well. It's the tide is rising on yield for the, that the money markets, T-bill, like even things like Jeppy, you get like an 8% payment on that. Real estate can do 12%, 13%. I think you always, the, my biggest thing, especially for new investors is find out where your lazy equity is. And I call this the under 5% witch hunt. In your portfolio, making less than 5%, you got to get it redeployed and may not may not want to go bipolar and put it all in the higher riskier deals value add deals just get it going just get it get getting a little bit higher rate of return even if it means like putting it into an infinite banking account making five percent that's a great thing and what i'm talking about is the lazy debt equity in your homes your rentals even if you have to pay five six seven percent on a HELOC there it's all personal situation and it's all personal finance. And I, what I actually enjoy is it all breaks down into how you live your lifestyle and the whole lifestyle design thing. But, but yeah, if we record this on iTunes, Google Play, and we had a bunch of slides here if you haven't checked it out on the YouTube channel. But if not, we will see you guys next week. And if you guys want to submit any questions, let us know. Team at simplepassivecashflow.com. Thanks.